Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 192, Chenault giveth and he taketh away. Last time, Pappy finally got his first kill, and it eased his ruptured soul for a while. Of course, in order to mix it up with the enemy as often as he and the other AVG pilots did, it meant being in the heart of the storm, Rangoon, and the Japanese land forces were coming ever closer. By February 10th, the Rangoon air defenders knew that the only thing from stopping them from catching even more hell was the holdout at Singapore, the pride of the British military in Asia. But then, Singapore fell five days later. For those civilians of whatever nationality in Rangoon, that was the final bell. Soon, thousands were abandoning the city, heading north or to the northwest, hoping to stay one step ahead of the advancing Japanese troops. For the AVG, the loss of Singapore meant that they had to be ready to vacate at a moment's notice. The question was, when would they be given the order to bug out? As for the War of Burma and of General Slim's forces now to the north of Rangoon, the AVG did make it possible for the civilians and Allied military to leave the city in relative peace. That is, after the military destroyed all that they thought would be useful to the soon-to-be new owners of Rangoon and of wider Burma. As we have seen in our regular series, General Slim's men, along with the Chinese, did fight hard, yet destiny at this stage of the war was against them. The battles went from hoping to hold up the invaders to merely buying time, while the remaining Allied troops headed for India. As the people and the services they provided left Rangoon, it became a scene of a post-apocalyptic world. Dead bodies were no longer being burned or buried. Criminals were let out, as were lepers. And, as nature always finds a way, wild dogs were coming deeper into the city to devour the bodies. It was a feeding frenzy. As pilot Jim Cross wrote in his diary of this time, the streets were filled with dead, mangled and wounded, and nobody was paying the slightest attention to them. As we drove along in our jeep, we tried to avoid running over dead bodies. But getting back to Pappy's unhappy world, as the enemy land troops were closing in, Pappy was tapped to fly support missions for the Chinese ground forces, and of course he did not like this. Pappy would rather be high in the air, taking on the enemy's best pilots, not flying low and within easy range of Japanese anti-air guns. But an order was an order, and Boynton was trying to make up for putting himself in a bad light in front of Chiang Kai-shek. And, as things can always get worse, the AVG pilots in Rangoon found that their planes were falling apart, what between the constant missions of various kinds and the lack of replacement parts. The number of operational planes started dwindling. Soon it got to the point of even the still-airworthy planes were operating less efficiently, putting the pilots' lives in danger. On February 22nd, Bob Neal, the squadron commander, told the pilots that they were now on permanent standby to be ready to leave at any time in one hour's notice. Then the next day, he ordered Pappy and five other pilots to head for Magway, about 200 miles or 321 kilometers north, and base themselves there. 
At Mogwai, they were to continue supporting the ground fighting and provide intel of enemy troop locations as well. Again, not glamorous, but necessary. And then came an event that proved, if there was any remaining doubt, that Pappy was a born fighter, more than a dedicated soldier. Just two days after he and the others left for Magway, the Japanese sent a massive air raid against Rangoon, complete with fighter escort. The good news was that the AGV, embracing Chinook's tactics, claimed just over 40 kills. The bad news was when Pappy heard about this, and it killed a little piece of him not to be involved. In fact, the pain lingered in Pappy for years. After the war, when writing his memoir, he could not help himself and claimed that he had been involved in this fight and had scored three kills, though he was hundreds of miles away. This should be taken as an indication of his desire to fight, more so than being dishonest. On February 27th, Bob Neal was told that the British expected to withdraw post-haste at any moment. In part, this included removing the radar station at Mingaladan. Neil knew it would be suicide to fight a more numerous enemy without this, besides the state of his planes, so ordered his men to fly to Magway. Within a short time upon landing, all of the AVG flew back to Kungming. The fighting for Burma, for them, and the Allied troops was over. The AVG pilots, now back in China, focused on hitting nearby enemy airfields to keep open the part of the Burma Road nearest them. And in these sorties, along with dogfights, Pappy learned a trick to keep the enemy from sneaking up on him by coming out of the sun. When he was searching for enemy planes, he would close one eye and hold the tip of his thumb in front of his open eye to block out the sun's glare. This saved him more than a few times in China and later in the South Pacific. To be sure, the AVG pilots were busy, regularly flying, but not always fighting, and honestly, Pappy got bored. Never a good thing. On March 5th, Pappy, as second in command of the 1st Squadron, took four pilots with him in their P-40s to escort Chiang Kai-shek's plane, along with Madame Chang, back to Chanyi, 80 miles to the east. The flight went well. The AVG pilots were not challenged, but on the flight back, Pappy miscalculated the wind speed. As such, they were soon off course and ran out of gas. The pilots were forced to crash land in a rough area near the Indochina border. Fortunately, all of the pilots survived, but three of the P-40s were beat up pretty bad. Chenault was outraged by the loss of these five planes, and the other AVG pilots guessed that Pappy had not been concentrating, as he was probably bored with escorting the first family. They did not hide their anger any more than Chenault did, and Pappy went into an emotional tailspin. Some of the mechanics of the AVG went to the crash site and restored three of the planes, but just. And that's when Pappy said, he would fly them back home to make up for his mistake. But the lead mechanic said it wasn't that simple, that if Pappy did this, first he would have to get it off the ground, and there simply wasn't that much room. But when he landed, if he landed, the landing gear would probably fall apart. 
and who knew how the hydraulics would react to this. It might just be best to leave them there or destroy them outright. But Pappy was determined to save his skin, though he admitted nothing to the other men. Lifting off at the earliest possible moment, he got the planes back home, one by one, and landed each one without killing himself. The mechanics were impressed, and maybe the pilots were too, but they said nothing. Either way, Pappy was no longer the vice squadron leader of the Adam and Eves. With this latest self-inflicted wound, Boynton went further down in his own dark rabbit hole. Just days later, on March 20th, he broke into Charlie Bond's private liquor stash, and he and three other pilots drank it all. Bond came back to the tent and realized what had happened. Putting aside his anger at this violation of his personal kit, he told the men to get some sleep, as they had to be ready for the next morning. But Pappy, now quite drunk, just wanted to fight, and he picked Charlie Bond. Bond was able to talk Pappy down, and they all went to their quarters, but Charlie knew that Pappy was gunning for him. Bond wrote in his diary, I told him that one of these days, we would have to decide who could knock the other man on his can. Adding insult to injury, the next day, the Japanese launched a massive air raid, some 266 planes, against Magway. After the smoke cleared, the few remaining AVG techs still there jumped into their trucks and drove towards Kungming. The Empire of Japan was rolling on, and the AVG became weaker each day to do anything about it. But the idea of simply fighting an ever-reductionist defensive war did not appeal to Chenault, nor his pilots. No, Magway had to be avenged, which meant it was time to take the fight to the enemy. The plan was for ten pilots to hit two targets, a Japanese airstrip at Chiang Mai in northern Thailand, and a second airfield at Lapang, about 45 miles south of Chiang Mai. As six of the AVG pilots were now aces, having at least five kills, they were chosen. But so was Pappy, for his fighting talent and his determination, along with a few others. The plan was to hit the two airfields with the rising sun on March 24th. But considering its distance from Kungming, they would have to have a layover at Nam Sung in Burma, putting the attackers then in range of Chiang Mai. Pappy and the nine other pilots awoke at 4.05 a.m., grabbed coffee and a quick bite, before taking off at 5.25 a.m. Their takeoff would only be lit by headlights from a few trucks. However, there would be no attack this day, as one pilot, Newkirk, flew off course and could not regroup in time, which would have weakened the attack. It was postponed until the following day. Taking off for the second time on March 24th, the AVG pilots closed in on their respective airfields. As they went in, Pappy, with his group, turned to approach the airfield lengthwise, maximizing what damage he could do on his first pass. The good news was that the Japanese below were not stirring. The bad news, from a certain point of view, was the sheer number of enemy planes below. Clearly, the AVG was massively outnumbered, but that's exactly why attacks like this were necessary. The only sound that morning came from the AVG planes, but soon that rumble 
was mixed with machine gun fire as Pappy, Bond, and the others flew in low to strafe the parked planes. Seconds later, the weak morning sun, it was around 7 a.m., was assisted as the planes began to explode. Those unfortunate souls below, running out to see what was going on, were cut down. Just after his pass, Pappy saw tracers fly by his plane. The element of surprise was gone rather more quickly than hoped for, but it had been a good start. Pappy turned after his first pass and commenced another, but even by now, the fire coming up at them had increased measurably. Boynton counted seven destroyed planes by his hand and could not help but add up the bonus money that he had just made. Just then, a voice called out, Let's get the hell out of here! All the pilots climbed and turned for Namsung. Giddy with delight, they of course had to buzz the field before they landed. Coming down at Lao Wing, the pilots noticed that eight of the ten planes were soon on the ground. They then figured out that McGarry was forced to parachute out of his damaged plane. Indeed, he would be a POW until 1945. As for Newkirk, his plane had taken a solid hit, which was sent down in flames with the pilot still inside. Drinking at a local bar and swapping stories, Pappy used a part of his brain to figure out that the AVG now owed him $3,500, which would help tremendously with his bills back home. But then Chenault squashed that. Officially, 15 planes had been destroyed. Thus, the pilots would split the bonus. This now left Pappy with only $750 and a new reason to hate Chenault and the AVG. The papers back home praised the AVG pilots again, and each article increased the number of Japanese planes destroyed and soldiers killed on the ground. But as Pappy knew, praise does not pay the bills. Still, for now, the American public had something to feel good about. Of course, this did not change the Japanese tide that rolled through the rest of Burma and other areas in the Pacific. For all of the glowing articles back home, many of the AVG pilots had a less rosy view of their own exploits, and their list of complaints was long and growing. When were they going to get a break, and conversely, for people like Pappy, why weren't there more missions? For that was how they got paid. But overall, it was home they missed and familiar surroundings. It would have helped to have had more than three squadrons and a hell of a lot more planes, or at least spare parts, anything to improve the odds. But then it got worse. This was war after all. In April, Chenault informed the pilots that they were needed to fly escort for slow-moving bombers, and to launch attacks against enemy ground troops attacking Chinese forces. Both of these types of missions would risk the lives of the pilots, to them, unnecessarily. And besides, they couldn't earn bonuses for such work. Soon, Pappy was only one of the many disgruntled flyers. What the pilots did not know, yet, was that the world had changed. In early April, Chenault had been inducted into the Air Corps, and his orders were to support the Chinese troops. As the men did not know this yet, Chenault flew to them at Lao Wing on April 19th and ordered them to toe the line. Period. 
This made the mood even more tense. And throwing gasoline on the fire, Chenault then said, Anyone who refused to fly was a coward. The men stood up to Chenault, and he apologized, but the damage had been done. Cracks were beginning to appear in the AVG. And even when the Chinese did not ask for any more support flights, the tension remained. Ironically, during this brouhaha, Pappy had been back in Kunming. This really came from the other pilots, but he didn't help himself by not hiding his similar feelings. He considered Chenault, Major General Stilwell, and Chiang as whores, doing anything Washington said, because it paid the bills. This is strange, coming from a man who only wanted dogfights to increase his bonuses. And then the final hammer came down. The pilots were told that in July, the AVG would be disbanded. Morale sank even lower. The pilots said that they only agreed to fly in Burma and that the war there was over. What would happen to them now? They guessed angrily that they would find out soon enough. But then Pappy heard rumors that he and the others would be sucked into the Air Corps, which meant the U.S. Army. Pappy wrote a letter to Chenault saying he was a Marine, and he would always be a Marine, and he remembered that his contract said he could go back to them when his time here was done. Chenault did not respond to this, which angered Pappy even more. He always had room for more anger. The timbers that stoked Pappy's furnace were many, if looked at from only his point of view. He had wanted a break from the martial aspect of the military, but that was fading fast. He had joined to make money, and he ended up with less than he expected. He wanted more combat missions and was not happy that he had not been given so many. He had expected to be made squadron commander, and that had not panned out. So for Pappy, much of April was spent drunk. On April 2nd, he was at a wedding, fell down a hill drunk, and spent just over a week in the hospital. On the 16th, he hopped into his plane during an alert, but the mechanic had been working on it. He had just stepped away for a moment. When he came back, Pappy was trying to take off, but the plane was only going from side to side. The others asked the mechanic, was that plane okay to fly? It was, but the mechanic guessed that Pappy was drunker than a skunk. Pappy never made it off the ground, running into a ditch. Guessing he had screwed up royally, Pappy jumped out of the plane, jumped into a vehicle, and took off. The mechanic filled out his report, but it clashed with Pappy's report, blaming the crash on the mechanic. Another man was added to the list that wanted to strangle Boynton. A few days later, Pappy turned up for night alert, drunk. Bob Neal got into his face, this was not the first time, and said that someone else would have to fly and risk their life because of Pappy. Boeington's only reply was that he threatened to resign. If this was supposed to elicit sympathy, it did not work. The others were tough men as well, and they needed a team player. <laughs> 